I'm Panicky in the UK, and this is Panicky Pictures. <coughs> Guys, sorry, that's so gendered. Uh, lads, are you getting sick of the Wilhelm scream? Because I feel like it's played, but I don't know what I want to replace it with yet. So, I don't know, keep your ear out for the new scream. Uh, it is today, Celebrate Bisexuality Day. Not only Celebrate Bisexuality Day, it's actually the 25th Celebrate Bisexuality Day. It was founded in 1998. Um, I was gonna do like a whole kind of uncharismatic rant about why I was using Celebrate Bisexuality Day rather than Bisexual Visibility Day or Bi Pride Day. Uh, which are, you know, some of the other kind of terms thrown around. Um, so I was going to do that, but I actually found a quote, which I think sums it up a lot better. And this is from the uh, Chicago Bi newsletter uh, from 2013. And it's an interview with Wendy Curry, who was one of the three founders of Celebrate Bisexuality Day. So I'm just going to read out this quote uh, from Curry. And it goes like this. Pride is an outward act, letting the world know we were not ashamed of who we were. CBD, Celebrate Bisexuality Day, was meant to be an inward act, getting our community together to celebrate who were we, <laughs> it's a misprint, and how privileged we were to be who we are. We picked the name for a reason. Screw what anybody else thinks. We rock. We are fabulous. They're lost if they can't see it. There were 364 other days of the year where we can grovel for the B in LGBT. The one day was just for us. So I think that pretty much sums up my feelings about it. Um, and I don't think that uh, I'll beat a dead horse. But for Celebrate Bisexuality Day 2023, I have been watching some movies. <laughs> Shock. Uh, three movies uh, that I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to talk about them in reverse order of the order in which I watch them, which makes sense in my mind. <sighs> uh, I think I think they're kind of um, also in uh, reverse order of how, how to phrase this, like significantly bisexual they are. Like I'm starting with the most bisexual movie and then probably moving to the least bisexual movie, I would say. Um, I don't know, maybe that's tenuous, but, um, but we'll, we'll start with the most bisexual movie of the three that I watched this week, uh, which was Hashtag Bi Week, of course. The whole week is for us. Actually, the whole month, um, so, <laughs> yeah. If you thought that this month was about you, unless you're bisexual, then cotton. Okay. Uh, so, the first, or the, <laughs> the last movie that I watched is Appropriate Behaviour, directed by Desiree Akavan. Um, it's my first time watching it. I will say this movie has been on my radar basically forever. Been wanting to watch it for a long time, but I did see a while back people saying that it was transphobic. And I know, I know, like, oh, why don't you watch it for yourself and, you know, make your own mind up rather than just conforming to the hive mind. And yeah, totally, but I have a million movies that I want to watch and if I hear something off-putting about one of them, then it slips further down the list, right? So I kept not getting around to it and not getting around to it and kind of thinking maybe I just wasn't going to get around to it. But I did see a video not that long ago uh, by Verily Bitchy on YouTube who is 
trans and bi, so she is officially allowed to have an opinion on it. And she was basically kind of talking about putting those lines into their proper context, I guess. And I felt like I had been led to believe that they're a lot worse than they actually were, honestly. Um, I do think they're jarring and they're not that funny, but they're, like, really not that bad, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I would say. Um, so anyway, so I've finally got around to watching this movie. I will say that my uh, experience of Akavan's other work has been quite mixed. I really liked The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which does have a two-spirit character in it. Um, I wasn't so hot on the bisexual, which I just was quite underwhelmed by, and I also felt like THE bisexual you think you're the bisexual? It's kind of like that Netflix show Love, where it was like, you think this show deserves to just be called Love? Like, you think this show is love? So anyway, I'd had sort of um, mixed reactions to her other work. I would say this kind of falls somewhere in the middle. I didn't really think it was anything special. I think probably the only reason that it has the reputation it has is because it's one of the few movies, certainly at the time, and I think still, that is just kind of um, unambiguously bisexual, where, you know, the bisexual protagonist repeatedly describes herself as bisexual and reaffirms her bisexuality. That's been pretty rare for a long time, less so now, but I think the fact that it was kind of unusual in that sense may have been what garnered it, the reputation that it got, because I don't really think it's anything very special. It's fine, but I feel like I've really seen a million indie movies that are doing very similar things, have very similar vibes, and I don't particularly think that this one stands out from the crowd except that it does have a bisexual protagonist and an Iranian protagonist, same person. But, you know, I am kind of glad that it uh, launched Akvan's career because, as I said, I really liked uh, Cameron Post and, you know, I'm sure she'll go on to do other stuff that I will like. There were moments where I felt sort of relatively emotionally involved. I thought the whole kind of threesome sequence worked really well. I liked that a lot. It's more or less a breakup movie, I guess, and I think it works fine on that level. But yeah, as I say, it didn't really blow me away. So let's move on. Uh, the second movie I watched, and I watched three, so it's the second movie I watched whichever way you're going. Okay. This is, why did I do this this way? Um, it's unnecessarily confusing. Doesn't matter. Anyway, I watched Beach Rats uh, by Eliza Hitman, which, I mean, when this movie came out, I remember the Broadway in Nottingham, where I used to live, it's an independent cinema, it had this huge poster of Beach Rats up forever, like for years and years, I think, after it came out. And I just didn't get around to seeing it at the time. And I always meant to. And I I thought of it as a gay movie, and we'll get to that. So since then, uh, without kind of putting the pieces together that it was the same writer-director, I had started watching Never Rally Sometimes Always, uh, which I'd heard great things about, but I really wasn't vibing with it. I found the dialogue very crude, and I didn't think that the performances were that great, honestly, from what I saw of it, 
and it's totally possible that it would have won me around if I'd given it more of a chance, but I think that I tend to err on the side of watching things out of a sense of obligation at times, and I'm trying to do that less, so you know, for me, the fact that I kind of turned it off when I was enjoying it is growth for me, so. Um, but I know a lot of people really like that movie. I do wonder how much of that is kind of more to do with, like, political allegiance to the message of the movie than it is to the film's actual quality, but who knows. I should also say that social realism isn't really my jam particularly, um, it's it's not a genre that I tend to respond to that much, you know, I don't, I guess I don't find verisimilitude that interesting in and of itself, like I need a little bit more, like my favourite Ken Loach movie is The Angel's Share, you know, just because it has a little bit of kind of whimsy injected into it. I love Somersault, but again, I kind of feel like that has... Uh, a kind of like slightly, not magical realist, but a slightly kind of poetic quality to it that elevates it for me. Uh, so yeah, so this isn't really my kind of thing. As I said, I had been thinking of it as a gay movie, but I read the synopsis and I saw that he does pursue a relationship with a woman. So I thought, oh, okay, maybe it's a bi movie. I would say that is not the case. I don't think that we are meant to read this character as being bi. I think we are meant to read this relationship that he has with the young woman as a product of compulsory heterosexuality, of social pressure, you know, wanting a beard as well. And I do very much think that's the case in this specific film. Uh, Having said that, I also think that perhaps Mm, there's maybe a kind of psychosexual element to the fact that he tends to go for older guys and, you know, he has this dying father, so kind of possibly difficult to completely pin down his attraction. But I think, mm, I think the reading that the text encourages is that this is a gay guy. I should say, by the way, that the main character is played by Harris Dickinson, who has really kind of arrived... I would say, more recently. Uh, The main thing that I've seen him in, I know that he was in Scrapper and uh, Triangle of Sadness and um, something else, I think, that uh, made kind of a splash. But the thing that I saw him in was uh, See How They Run, which was pretty um, underwhelmed by, or rather, like, I was really in it for the first half or so, and then it kind of lost me. But uh, I thought the cast was fantastic and he was great and he has incredible range. I mean, what he's doing in See How They Run could not be more different from what he's doing in Beach Rats. Uh, So I think he's a really talented guy and it kind of seems like he's very much having his moment now, which is great. But anyway, uh, where was I? So yeah, so I think this guy is gay. But I do also kind of want to broaden out a little bit and talk about that kind of trope in queer cinema, I guess, of the beard or, you know, the kind of compulsory heterosexuality leading to a mixed gender relationship or or mixed gender sex. And I think that there can be a tendency for audiences to read that as being the case even when the text doesn't support it as strongly as it does here and actually when a 
by reading is very much available and valid. So I'm thinking of, for example, Elio in Call Me By Your Name. I think there's a perfectly legitimate by reading of that character. I think both the main characters in Carol, Taraz and Carol, I think there are legitimate by readings of both of those characters probably more so in the novel than in the film, but I think in both. Jack Twist, the Jake Gyllenhaal character in Brokeback Mountain, I think there is a perfectly legitimate by reading of that character. Not so much Ennis, the Heath Ledger character, but I think for Jack Twist you can definitely read it that way. And I think that these movies tend to get labelled as gay movies and any relationship with a, uh, any mixed gender relationship rather, tends to get dismissed as simply being a product of somebody not really knowing their identity yet or you know somebody sort of being prevailed upon by the forces of compulsory monosexuality, social pressure, etc. And sorry I think I said compulsory monosexuality which I do think is a thing but I meant to say heterosexuality. Anywho, uh, and I think this is not just an issue in film reception and media reception. I think it is an issue also in the way that we interpret queerness in history, right? And I think that, so for example, I'm not going to pretend to be this expert in the biography of Oscar Wilde, but I do think it's really interesting that he always seems to get read and described as being a gay man who married a woman for kind of reasons that I feel never get properly explained because sure, you know, there may have been sort of social pressure for him to do that, but I don't think of Oscar Wilde as a guy who was that susceptible to social pressure. He seemed like somebody who was comfortable rebelling against that. And my understanding is that he wrote very loving letters to his wife, and they had two children. So, I don't know, I, I, I just feel like there's a tendency sometimes to minimise mixed gender relationships in favour of reading somebody as being monosexual and simply um, the caving to, to social pressure, even when I don't know how much real evidence there is for that. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely acknowledge that that is an experience that a lot of monosexual queer people have, that they do have these early mixed gender relationships, you know, when they're still kind of discovering their sexuality, and even later on, if, you know, depending on kind of what background they come from, um, so, yeah, absolutely, that is an authentic experience for people who do very much identify as being gay or lesbian and not bi, but I just think sometimes, um, people can paint with sort of broader brush strokes than are really warranted. And also, alright, the, the other thing is, right, gay, lesbian, bi, this is terminology that is contemporary, you know, how appropriated it even is to apply that to historical figures, we can go back and forth on that uh, all day. My take on it is that I think we do use contemporary, by which I mean contemporary to us, 
terminology and language all the time when we're talking about history for clarity, for ease of understanding. And I think that people only get really squeamish about it when that terminology pertains to gender and sexuality and then people start to feel uncomfortable and feel like we shouldn't be imposing these terms on historical figures who would not have used that language. I think it's a little bit of a double standard because I think, you know, we don't always use the language that they would have used when we're talking about their lives. We don't necessarily lapse into Middle English, you know? And so I feel like that squeamishness feels a little bit um, loaded because it does seem quite specific to those topics. But I'm not really a student of history, as Baird Whitlock once said, so whatever. Take it or leave it. Um, Okay. So yeah, Beach Rats wasn't really my jam, honestly. I kind of, with a lot of social realist cinema... Sometimes I feel like it leans into being miserable for the sake of being miserable, and I kind of felt that here. Particularly, honestly, the the only time I felt really engaged was when this character, Jeremy, arrived, who I kind of thought was her little ray of light in the film. Honestly, one of the only people who had much personality, although I do think the mother was great, I should say, And the way that the film treated this character of Jeremy was just so fucking depressing. It really turned me off because I was kind of starting to turn a corner on it. I was starting to think that maybe it was going to win me around in the end. But then uh, it went in a different direction uh, that I didn't really appreciate. And yeah, it was a shame. Uh, So not a hit for me and not really a buy movie, but you know. I gave it a hundred minutes of my life. I thought I should squeeze some fucking content out of it. Um, And the third or the first (laughs) film that I watched, um, honestly not um, thinking of it as as being a bi-week thing at all. It's just a movie that I had been wanting to watch. Uh, The Five Devils. And this was a film that I was really excited to see. I thought that the trailer made it look really exciting and it had this cool like magical realist premise that really appealed to me the premise being to try and condense it uh into a couple of sentences essentially there's this young girl called vicky uh who has this talent for capturing people's scents uh she has this very unusual sense of smell Uh, which her mother uh, is actually slightly worried about. And uh, then her aunt visits um, her her father's sister and she captures her aunt's scent and somehow this triggers time travel and she starts turning up at these pivotal moments in her aunt's life and her aunt is the only person who can see her it's a little bit when Marnie was there maybe um Tom's Midnight Garden kind of thing a little bit 
but uh, a little bit darker, I would say. Uh, There's a whole thing where the aunt, because she's the only person who can see her, believes that she's mentally ill, and that starts a whole tragic chain of events. Um, the, The film ended up really disappointing me, because I thought that was a really intriguing premise. The trailer made it look so exciting, as I said. And I was quite disappointed to find the actual film was kind of confused, not very emotionally engaging. It stars, I'm going to fuck up this name, but it stars Adele Exarchopoulos, is that right? Um, Who's in Blue is the Warmest Colour, which is not a movie I've seen, I don't know. Everything I heard about it made it sound kind of exploitative and very male gazy, so I haven't bothered maybe I'm wrong, whatever. Um, but she's she's giving this very, very frigid performance, which I think to a degree is in keeping with this character who is not very happy in her life, but I think the trouble with it is that it makes it very hard to believe in her relationships, even with her daughter, with her husband of 10 years, it kind of feels like she's a stranger who's just been kind of plopped down into this household. They love her, but she seems very disengaged to the point that I didn't really believe those relationships. And I I found that performance quite alienating. The performance that I think... Well, there are two performances, really. So we've got Sally Dramay as Vicky, the young girl. And I think that's actually uh, a really impressive performance. Um, Quite creepy. Uh, She's actually quite a scary child as time goes on. I think you start off feeling very sympathetic towards her, but she (laughs) starts to act in ways that are like increasingly sinister. And and I think that uh, Drame really kind of pulls off that dichotomy really well. And the her father is um, played by Mustafa Mbengue. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm probably not. Sorry. For me, the best performance in the film, uh, I found it really strong. But the trouble is that that character is really underdeveloped. And what's interesting, I noticed this before, is that on Letterboxd and on IMDb, the synopsis... Uh, describes this character Jimmy as a man struggling to find his place. I didn't really see that supported anywhere in the text. We know that he's Senegalese, um, so he's like a first generation immigrant living in France, but besides that I didn't really see any sign that he was struggling to find his place. All you really see, he has a conversation with a colleague at one point that's a little bit fraught, but that's because of his sister and her past, it's not because of his Senegalese background, unless that was some very subtle subtext that I wasn't picking up on. Um, It really didn't seem to me that that was the implication. There is racism in the film. Vicky experiences racist bullying at school, but I didn't feel that that was really part of Jimmy's story textually. Uh, So this thing of him struggling to find his place, I really don't understand where that's coming from. And honestly, I felt that that character needed to be much better developed. And I felt that the relationship between him and uh, Vicky's mother, Joanne, needed to be better developed. It's never really clear how they ended up married to each other. 
And so I just, I found it really hard to be engaged with and believe in that, even though I did think that Mbengue was giving a really strong performance. Um, And then on the other side, you have the um, relationship between Joanne and her sister-in-law, Julia. A lot of J names, I've only just picked up on that. Uh, Probably doesn't mean anything. Uh, Anyway, Julia's played by Swala Amati. I think... A, a good performance, a strong performance, a kind of an interesting character, but also feels a little bit thin to me. And that relationship, it was more developed than any of the others in the film, but it still wasn't that well developed, I have to say. And it should be the heart of the film, but I don't think the film really sells it. And then on the other hand, you know, you have this um, time travel thing going on, which was really the part, I think, that most intrigued me about the film. And I don't think that quite comes off either. I don't think it ties together very elegantly. I don't think it's that well thought out. And then in the final shot, there's this kind of twist or this new thing being introduced And I really don't know what the film is trying to say with that final shot. I genuinely don't know what that is supposed to mean. Kind of feels like mystery for the sake of mystery. I feel like nothing really in this film pays off as well as it should. And I was very disappointed by that because, as I said, I was really looking forward to it. I thought the trailer made it look great, but it just did not hit for me. Now, as to whether this is a bisexual film or not, Again, I think it's unclear. I Because the relationship between Joanne and Jimmy is so underdeveloped, it was impossible for me to understand what her motives were for marrying him. So I really don't know if there was a genuine attraction there. She does say that she loved him at one point, mostly when Vicky was born, which feels very lukewarm. Yeah, I I really can't say whether this quote-unquote counts as a bisexual movie. I think it just... (laughs) Bisexuals are often accused of being confused. I think this movie is confused. Maybe that makes it a bisexual movie. I don't know. Okay, I'm recording this at the end and then dropping it in uh, because I completely forgot to say something about this movie. So there's a scene in this movie where two of the characters do like a drunken karaoke rendition of Total Eclipse of the Heart, um, very strong French accents, kind of getting the lyrics wrong a lot. That might have been in the trailer. I watched the trailer quite a while ago and then it had just kind of stuck in my head as a movie that I wanted to watch but I didn't necessarily remember all the details of it. Possibly that was in the trailer. I don't remember. Anyway, that's fine. But then I also watched Rotting in the Sun, which I don't talk about in this episode because it's not a bi movie at all, it's just a gay movie. Uh, But in that film, there is also a scene of somebody uh, with a strong Mexican accent doing very bad drunken karaoke to Total Eclipse of the Heart um, and basically getting almost none of the words right. so that was like a coincidence, right? I watched two movies very like close to one another. They're both queer movies, they're both on movie, they're both made around the same time, and they both have a scene like this. So that's kind of coincidental. But here's the fucked up part. This is the part that is really screwing with my head, okay? Is that I have been working on a screenplay. 
and it is a queer screenplay. And I had a scene in that screenplay where there was like drunken karaoke to Total Eclipse of the Heart and I've been listening to that song and I don't remember what made me think of that or why I decided to do that, but I don't think it was like a half-formed memory of the trailer for The Five Devils and it's not in the trailer for uh, Rotting in the Sun. So I don't know what's going on, but that was really spooky to me. <laughs> so I probably can't use that in my screenplay anymore, and honestly that's probably the best because it's probably kind of hack. You know, it's like a first draft thing, you just throw a lot of stuff at the wall. But yeah, what the fuck is going on with that? Is there like something in the water? Are the aliens implanting total eclipse of the heart into all of the queer people's minds? Like what's happening, man? Um, okay, so yeah, moving on. I just wanted to say that. As you were. I would say of the three films I watched, the unequivocally bisexual film, Appropriate Behaviour, was also probably my favourite of the three. But I didn't really love any of them, which kind of sucks. Um, But you know, I've been saying for a while, uh, I think some of the best storytelling right now, particularly the best kind of queer and romantic storytelling is on TV. And I do feel really seen uh, by a couple of TV shows that are pretty recent. Um, I've been banging the drum for these for a while. I've mentioned them before on the podcast. Uh, One of them is Work in Progress. Um, and on Showtime, uh, and one of them is Feel Good on Channel 4, and, you know, both of them also kind of encompass a degree of, uh, gender fluidity, have trans characters as well. I mean, uh, Mae Martin, of course, is non-binary IRL, and their character on the show sort of begins to explore that non-binary identity in the second series, You've got a kind of gender non-conforming, I would say, protagonist in Work in Progress. uh, And she dates a trans man. So, not that, like... I'm not saying that shows need to, or queer stories need to tick certain boxes in order to be, like, good representation or make me feel seen. It's much more in the execution than it is some kind of like checklist of identities that need to be paraded you know I just I do think that these are really well written shows that I found kind of much more authentic to my experience than any of these movies were so you know I'm I'm really happy that those exist another show I'm glad that it exists that's not good grammar but you know you get my drift Heartstopper, not for me, not a show for me. I've realised about myself, I have no interest in shows about teenagers unless they have some kind of supernatural element. Unless somebody's like a fucking vampire or a warlock or, you know, they're all running around on post-apocalyptic Earth. The Hundred, that's another show with a great very flawed bisexual protagonist, Clark Griffin. We can argue all day about the way that that went down. I know a lot of people weren't very happy about the storyline there, but anyway, whatever. I love Clark Griffin. I really enjoyed the first, let's say, three or four series of uh, The Hundred. Anyway, um, I only like teen shows when they're genre, you know? I don't care about 
like mundane teens in a school. I, I simply do not care about that. So Heartstopper is not a show for me, but I'm so glad it exists for the people who need it. And obviously, you know, there is a character there who, and I'm going off what I've seen on social media because I don't watch this show. There is a character there who is bi and proud and consistently affirming his bisexuality. That fucking rules. I, I'm not watching it. But it fucking rules. I'm I'm happy that the kids have it. Um, for me, I'm watching the stuff with the kind of older, very mentally ill queers because that's that just resonates more for me for some reason. Um, but yeah, no, very happy that people have Heartstopper. Um, so that's all good. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of a muted uh, celebrate bisexuality day slash hashtag bi week slash bi month. I guess um, I haven't been celebrating the movies that I've watched that much, but I, I certainly do celebrate the TV shows that I've mentioned. Um, I love them. Uh, I hope you'll seek them out and give them a shot if you haven't already. Um, Work in Progress is, I believe, on Showtime in the US. Um, it's on Now TV in the UK. Feel Good, I think, is on Netflix worldwide and on uh, all four in the UK. Uh, Heartstopper, as you know, is on Netflix. Whatever, you know. I Again, I'm not like personally recommending it, but it's very important to a lot of people, so whatever. Um, The 100, I don't actually know where you can watch that now. Um, I think it was on Channel 4 at one point and then maybe moved on to Prime. I don't know about now. You can find it if you want to. Hey, uh, I liked it, so. Uh, Alright, so I'm going to do something slightly different now and I am going to talk about some stuff that I've been enjoying recently has nothing to do with the topic of this episode just some like fun recommendations I don't know maybe you like it maybe you won't you can turn off if you want I don't know anyway um I watched Beef on Netflix and I fucking loved it I loved that show Stephen Yen, of course, uh, we all love him from Sorry to Bother You, I Think You Should Leave, Burning, probably The Walking Dead, which I didn't watch, um, other stuff, uh, he's fantastic, we love him, Ali Wong, don't really know her from other things, uh, haven't seen her stand-up, um, I did watch Always Be My Bi- Always Be My Maybe? Is that what it was called? Thought it was just okay. But she fucking rules in this show. She's so good. What a performance. I mean, Stephen Yen, like, obviously we know he's incredible. The fact that he, like, one of the hottest and most charismatic guys in the world can pull off playing this character of Danny, who's this kind of, like, loser schlub, and actually be convincing in that role, I think is such a testament to his talent. He's great. Ali Wong, though also fucking great. Honestly, I, this show is so up my street. I love it. Not queer, but hey, sometimes straight stuff is good too. (laughs) Uh, so I would really, really highly recommend that. Um, I did also start watching the docuseries Wrestlers, um, before I ran out of Netflix, because I'm doing that thing again where I'm like, 
cancelling one streaming service and I'm going to a new streaming service so anyway I cancelled Netflix before I'd got past the second episode of Wrestlers but I was really enjoying it up until that point. I think it's very constructed but I kind of like that about it because it's like it breaks kayfabe but then it's playing into the kayfabe that is reality tv and I think there's kind of something structurally interesting and like knowing and self-reflexive about that so I like that. Uh, Alright, what else? Um, I recently uh, played Bioshock Infinite for the first time. It's an old game. Um, I thought it was really, really interesting. Uh, Definitely some missteps there. I think the whole thing where they kind of both sides the white supremacist and the, um, like, civil rights campaigner... That's really messed up, but I don't play a lot of first-person shooter games, and I think I hadn't really thought about the narrative and world-building potential of that style of game that much before. Yeah, I think I'd maybe kind of um, underestimated what those games could be, uh, and I found it really impressive, despite that one part of it that really uh was not well thought out you know i thought there were there were other things that were very kind of smart and interesting about it and i recently read young jane young by gabrielle zevin um who wrote tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow uh, which i also read recently it was very buzzy i actually think young jane young is the better book i think that She's playing with some of the same ideas. She kind of does a whole choose-your-own-adventure thing in Young Jane Young, which she then goes on to develop more in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. But I think it actually works better in Young Jane Young. I think she sticks the landing a lot more in Young Jane Young. I was really, really on board with Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow for like the first two-thirds of the novel. And then it kind of started to lose me. I felt like it got a little bit diffuse and... Um, there's a very dramatic incident that I wasn't sure felt entirely earned, and I think that I feel like you need to see more of what is special and positive and worth preserving in the central relationship in order to really care about it, because I feel like a lot of the novel um, is about that relationship being dysfunctional or barely existent um and it's so it's hard to fully engage in it wanting it to work that was my feeling there was a lot of stuff i really liked about it but young jane young i think actually walks that tightrope a lot better for me uh i thought it was a really uh really interesting novel anyway i just read that so maybe check it out i got it in my local library so support your local library and see if they have young jane young what else um i just listened to third series of from the oast house available on audible i know that uh audible is owned by amazon and they are evil so i don't know what are you gonna do right uh, like, we live in a society, I don't know. Um, I also listened, re-listened to Prunella Scales doing the audiobook of Wives and Daughters, which is one of my favourite things of all time. 
Uh, that's actually another thing where there is some really vile racism in that book. Um, but, uh, I mean, to be fair, Bioshock Infinite is 10 years old and Wives and Daughters is like, I want to say like 170 odd years old. So, mm, you know, maybe one of those gets more of a purse than the other potentially. Also, I feel like the racism in Wives and Daughters is very much coming from one particular character, not necessarily the narrative voice, if you want to be generous to Gaskell, it's arguable. But I don't think that the I don't think that it's racist like on a narrative level per se, um, in the way that Bioshock Infinite is. So I don't know. Uh do with that what you will. But anyway, I was going fully insane over the summer as I often do. I mean I'm generally just hanging on to sanity by the thinnest thread uh but there was a period over the summer where that thread was thinner than ever baby and uh yeah just something about uh elizabeth gaskell really soothes me especially with uh prunella scale do scales rather doing the voices so it's kind of a niche recommendation but you know maybe give it a try my mother listened to it and she loved it too so you know there you go um, alright, well I think I'm gonna wrap it up there. Oh, I'm on Blue Sky now, I don't have any invite codes, but if you are on Blue Sky, uh, I'm there, panicking in the UK, I've made like three, whatever they are, I was gonna say tweets, uh, posts, whatever. So, you know, like, come and follow me and talk to me about fucking movies or whatever, if you want, I don't know. Uh, well... <laughs> It was good chatting to you. Oh shit, I totally forgot. Yeah, two two more like things I've been into, two more recommendations. All right, so two other things. I've been rewatching Peep Show, and I know like we all have our feelings about Robert Webb and some of his opinions, but Peep Show remains fucking great. To me, like the main analog, obviously Seinfeld's in there a little bit, but to me, the main analogue for Peep Show, I feel like the American Peep Show is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And they both have one of the main characters come out as queer, like, very late in the show. And I think that's interesting. I always kind of feel like the parallels between those two shows uh, are quite striking. So anyway, so I've been rewatching Peep Show. I've also been rewatching Columbo. Fuck me, I love Columbo. It's so good. Um, and it's on Freebie. It's on Freebie, so you can watch it for Freebie. It's it's there. I don't know about the US. I don't know what you guys have going on. All the rest of the world. I have listeners all around the world. Not a lot, but they're dotted around. Um, so I apologize for uh, being uh, so US and UK centric. Sorry about that. But yeah, I don't know what you have going on. Uh, hopefully you have a, a just watch or whatever where you can catch this stuff. But hey, uh, let's wrap it up. <laughs> but yeah, like come, come and hang with me on Blue Sky or whatever if you can get an invite code. Or, you know, I'm still on Twitter. Uh, Letterboxd. It's panicking the UK everywhere. Probably not Instagram. That's kind of like more of a... I am on there. I mean, you can follow me. Um, it's up to you. I don't know. Um, I don't really use that for, I just post memes, but you know, whatever, do what you want. Okay. I'm going to wrap it up now. Bye.